Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. When you're done, make sure to head to our website at unapologists.com where you can see all of our latest updates and our season lineup. And while you're there, head over to the support page so you can find out ways to keep the show going. Enjoy today's episode. Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Unapologist Podcast, where the best PD happens in your backyard. Tonight, we have the ketchup on your french fries, Christopher Bolson. I love that you said the ketchup on your french fries, because not only am I the side dish, but I'm not even the side dish. I'm the condiment that goes on the side dish, because Vito, you know what you are? You're the full burger, bud. You're oh, the full burger. You are just too generous, too generous with that. Everyone loves the fries, but Chris. Yeah. Vito. Vito. This, this year. This, this year, year. Big year. You know what I'm doing this year? What are you doing? I've decided this is the year I'm nominating you for World Teacher, the World Teacher Award. Oh, I got some I'm bad news you for you. I'm for best teacher in the world. I've decided. I, I'm I, have some, you. I have some terrible news for you, Vito. Terrible news. What's that? There's already 4,721 nominations for you for that very award. <laughs> All of them rejected. Mackenzie <laughs> on this end. But you know what, Chris? Why are we Vito, talking? No Why one wants to hear from it. We get, we, get, we get thousands and thousands and thousands of handwritten fan mail every week. And all of them say, let's get rid of the hosts and just have the guests. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> well, you know what? This is a good time to stop talking because we we have someone. We have a legend with us. Great, tonight. great guest tonight. Person with us tonight. We have a we have a person who he's been a science and math teacher for nearly twenty years, taught in four different countries. In addition to working in the classroom, he completed a master's in education from UBC University of British Columbia and is currently a doctoral student at the University of Alberta in secondary education. And his research focuses on scientific literacy and scientific argumentation. My goodness, in this past year, we could definitely use more of that in all of us. And he's particularly interested in how we develop epistemic knowledge of science in students. We can't stress how crucial that is for all of us today. We have Ian Doctor on the show. Ian, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This is going to be fun. Oh, we're, we are so excited to learn from you and steal your ideas and uh, tell the world about all the great things you're doing. And the one thing we love to hear is the story of our guests of how they got into teaching and what led them on the path they're on today. So can you tell us yours? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I can't really point to a single event that led me to teaching. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in science teaching. I've always liked science, and I found it kind of fascinating that we can know so much about the world from uh, kind of such humble beginnings. Um, but I've also really liked working with people. So when I was in university, that's kind of where I found myself drawn to. And as I, I went through my, my science training, I, I realized that none of the other careers in science really had a lot of appeal to me. I didn't really see myself, you know, working out in the field kind of by myself or working in the lab. Uh, so I wanted to work with people, and teaching just seemed like a good fit for me. So I, in some ways, I kind of fell into that. But after I started doing it for a while, I realized how important a job it was and the, the huge impact that we could make. And 
you know, that's, that's kind of carried with me for the last 20 years and, and into my practice today. So t- take me back a little bit then. What uh, specifically, what field of science were you, were you into? Uh, what were you? What uh, most of my training has been in uh, astronomy and, and astrophysics and physics in general. So I, I did um, study quite a bit of physics at the U of A. And I, I found, like, I really enjoy astronomy. Um, I think a lot of people do. Like, astronomy is one of these sciences that everyone has some level of curiosity about. So if I talk, start talking about, you know, I, I was talking to someone the other day about um, what the, the most numerous particles in the universe are, the, the photons. And uh, I decided, well, good question, what's the second most numerous particle? There are actually these tiny little things called um, neutrinos. And so this ends up in a big, long discussion about, you know, how black holes are created and, and what are the requirements for them. And, and people that had no interest in, or no training in, in astronomy were, were kind of getting involved in this discussion because at some level, on some level, everybody wants to know about these things. Um, but for me, the, the difficulty was, and this is kind of the same thing I advise my students, is astronomy is fascinating on so many levels. It tells us about our place in the universe um, it tells us, or it helps inform about science and technology ranging from, you know, x-ray machines to radio waves and, and microwave ovens. But as a field, astronomy itself is not particularly commodifiable. So I have friends who trained as astrophysicists, and they're really left with only two options at the end of their careers. They're either going to teach or they're going to do research. And both of those jobs are incredibly competitive to do at a, like a doctoral or like a university level. Um, and I didn't see myself doing that kind of research. Um, so I ended up thinking, you know, where can I make the most impact with students and or with people in general? And that ended up being at a, like a secondary uh, high, high school level where I'm teaching science. But really what I'm more interested in doing is teaching students about how to learn about science. So we're not, it's not so much the science that we're, we should be focusing on, although sometimes we, we, we do. But... Ultimately, what we're doing is teaching students. We're teaching kids about whatever discipline it is we're doing. And that's really the appeal that, that I found in education. Um, it's not the, the particular material that I teach. Such a human such a human way of looking at it with those connections. So it's yeah. almost like passion plus people equals teaching. Yeah, absolutely. 100%, Chris. So then we're jumping to students now. And when it comes to a science class, students, I find, do have a less apprehension about it than, let's say, mathematics. And we've had a few math teachers on here to talk about that. But it still requires a ton of buy-in because, you know, thinking requires work. Uh, so what do you do to set up your science courses to get students excited? Uh, well, I'm a physics teacher, so I, I like to blow things up. That's, that's kind of number one. <laughs> yes! So not yes. just chemistry class anymore. You can blow things up that's in physics right. books. I have a, um, a potato gun I made out of some PVC piping, and uh, I have it mounted in my classroom. And it's got to be, like, every semester I use it three or four or five times, almost any chance I get. Because students like to see, you know, you want the big bang in, in a classroom um, like that. But one of the things I think is also really important when we do stuff like that is that we are tying this back to what we're supposed to be teaching. So... It's not, I'm not just blowing something up for the sake of, you know, having a big explosion. There's got to be, you know, we want to understand the science behind what's going on. So with this potato gun in particular, what I'm looking at is things like conservation of momentum, um, how well, but more importantly, how well does, you know, one type of, of calculation agree with another? Um, and I can talk about, you know, why more later. Um, but 
it's not just about the explosion or the, about the you know the, the, the wow. What's the point to it? Um, like that, that's, those kind of explosions and, and big you know grandiose demos are always going to get students' attention. It's fun, exciting. I mean, it should be, but our focus should always be on you know what we teach. And in my case, physics, chemistry, science. Um, I mean, ultimately, what I want to do is get students interested in science by making sure they understand why they should be interested in science. I mean, I think it was Carl Sagan, um, Carl Sagan or Richard Feynman said that if you can explain to students why something's useful, the methods to teaching are going to be self-evident. I mean, ultimately, what I want is students to know why what they're learning is going to be useful. I think if you can convince them of that, you know, you tell them that it's not just, you know, to pass your you know, next quiz or get a mark on a grade. If they know what the point is to it, if they understand, you know, what the reason is for it, it's a lot easier for them to give you that buy-in. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate, but my experience has been that, particularly in science, we, we don't really do that a lot. We focus on, like, for instance, you know, I'll, I'll maybe pick on chemistry a little bit here. We focus on, like, a titration. I'm going to teach you how to do a titration. We're going to learn a titration so you know how to do a titration. When is that ever relevant? Like, I've been a, I've been a science teacher my whole life. I've been involved in scientific disciplines. It, you know, almost all my adult life, I've never had to do a titration outside of school. And I'm going to bet nobody has. And I could, I mean, I, I pick on a chemist, but I could do the same thing with physics. Like, if I learn nuclear physics, I love it. It's great, like, learning how nuclear fusion works. But when is it relevant? So, I mean, and there it is. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of utility to it. But explaining that to students first, before we start teaching them about the material, it has to be, like, priority one. If they don't understand why they should learn about it, they're not really going to care. Um, so, I mean, this is, here's an interesting question. I, I, um, I asked this to um, my colleagues, uh, actually my students, but day one of class, what is the purpose of science? When we're doing science, what are we doing? And this is a really interesting question. Um, so I, I got into a, I'll, I'll call it an academic argument with some of the students in my doctoral program uh, last year. We were discussing this, and I actually, so they were mostly math teachers um, that we were talking about, because it's a, a general secondary science course we were taking. And something about what one of them said kind of got me thinking, and I stopped the whole discussion. I said, guys, wait a minute. i got to ask you this, because it seems like where you're taking this discussion isn't really, I, I disagree, you know, with, with the premise of what you're saying is, so is math science? And the almost uniform, uh, like, unanimous answer was, yeah, sure, mostly. It is. And I said, oh, okay, well, what's the difference between the men? So where, where does the line between science and math end? And it's a really interesting question. If you try to pin down what it is that a mathematician is doing and what it is that a scientist is doing, those are two really interesting different questions. And I think if we're not starting with those questions with students, they're not really going to have a good understanding of what it is they're supposed to be doing in a science class. So anyway, do you guys want to take a shot at the question? Oh, <laughs> Vito, I... Uh... What do you think? What do you think, oh, just, bud? Well, well no, I, I love the question. I love the question. So I, I have two responses to that question. First of all, first the blending of math uh, and physics. My uh, older sister, actually, when I was contemplating whether I should focus more on math or physics at one point in my life, she said, I don't know, do you want to understand how the universe works or formulate a way to get there? <laughs> That'll determine which way to go. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, that's, that's a good way of, of doing them. But uh, the purpose of science is... Um, Oh, wow. I, I, I would have to say it's thinking in terms of the scientific method of what do we know and 
how can we push the boundaries of what do we know through observation? That's awesome. There's, I, mean, I, should, I should clarify too. There's no, I can't say there's a right or a wrong answer. I'm not giving you guys a grade on this. So I think I, I really like the question because um, I studied theology. I'm a chaplain, a religious educator, um, and I come from that other way. But I have this amazing... Um, I see science and, and what I do in terms of theology, um, essentially they're two rivers to a similar understanding, you know, two rivers leading to the same ocean and one's asking certain questions about, uh, the what and the why, and the other's asking questions about, okay, but, but what's the actual process and what's the, what's, what's the physical component of this that we get there and how do we discover it? with our limited window that's always expanding, but is always going to be just a peephole into the universe. Um, and so that's how I kind of see it. I love that. Chris. That's interesting. I don't, I don't share this with a lot of people, Chris, but I've, um, I'm, I'm a Catholic and I've had a lot of those similar discussion, like well, internal discussions sometimes with myself about where that intersection between religion and um, science is. It's a re- I mean, you could do a whole podcast on that question. Oh, you could do a whole doctoral dissertation on that, my friend. But you know what? We can connect that right now. Because I've been thinking about that for for 25 years. And the answer is, for me, is infinity. Right? Uh, The the understanding of the universe is infinite. We're we're, we're always on the path to that. Just as if we have an infinite God, we're always on the path to understanding God. So the the, the two intersected, infinity. Well, I look at it like... It's kind of like, I agree totally, Chris, with what you're saying. The two are asking very different questions. And not to say that they're, mm-hmm. neither question is valid or invalid, but they're, they're, you're looking at the universe in two different ways. Right? You're looking for, yeah. Um, and and I would even say, I would even say that it's so important to be aware, and you don't need to be, you know, you don't need to have a degree in it or anything, but you have to be respectful of the sciences because yeah. that's going to answer a lot of the questions you're looking for and on the science component, there are things in which we can never... There are things that we will not know because they fall into that area that we call faith, which is a difficult uh, thing. But I really think, as a, as a person, it's so important to understand that there are rivers that we can paddle down with, with, with ease and not have to say it's, I can't be over there, or I can't be over there. And I think that's such a huge component. Um, of what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let me let me go back to like I said, we could get we could talk about that for a while. Oh, that yeah, we could go on for hours. Yeah. We'll have to I, I, have I, you back. We'll have no, to have no, you no, back. That's back to you. Not, for, not from us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let me go back to the question. So is you know is math science? What's what's the distinction? Like, and there's no right answer to that question, but I do think it's something that as educators we need to be really intentional about. Even even just looking at what is science, um, rather than just say, well, guys, you're in a science class, let's start learning about photosynthesis. But what exactly is it that students are doing or scientists are doing when they're practicing science? So what I tell my students is that math is, what fundamentally, math is simply about looking for patterns in numbers and using those patterns to solve problems. That's essentially what math is. Whether you're doing calculus or geometry, you're looking for patterns somehow. Science is the exact same thing, but we're looking for patterns in nature. And if you're not connecting what you're doing to nature, you're missing a big part of, of science. And so when I'm trying to get students to buy into my science class, I want them to see the connections back to their world outside of school. Because if they're not doing that, they're really not doing science. It's a nice academic exercise, but if we can't make that connection, we're missing a huge part of what it means to do science. And that, that's going to connect with something 
about later too, because uh, the concept of of doing, yeah, it, it it needs to be something that is done. Yeah, yeah. Well, science is a process, right? Like it's it's a big frustration I have, and maybe we're jumping to different questions here. That's okay. <laughs> this is what it's all about. We just go down the rabbit hole. My uh, my frustration sometimes is with the way the curriculum is laid out. Um, in, in very, like I said, I taught in a whole bunch of different. I think I've used eight or nine different curricula throughout my teaching career, and most of them treat science almost as this static body of knowledge. You know these facts. You you memorize this information. You even master a skill, but it's you know it's this. It's like an algorithmic skill. You do this and this and this and this. You get your mark and you move on to the next level. And it, it so it, it frustrates me sometimes so much because it's missing a lot of the wonder and the mystery that goes into science, where it's it's not a, a static thing. It's a process of discovery, and we do our students a disservice if we don't let them do that. If we take away kind of that mysterious, um, unknown kind of aspect of discovery that they should have when they when they are in a science classroom. And isn't so how, that what? How, oh, sorry, Vito, you go ahead. So how does that look in your classroom? How do you build that discovery within it? So it, it's really, it can be really challenging. And I mean, for a large part of my career, I didn't. I just, I was, I, I like to think I was pretty good at doing, you know, getting the knowledge across to these students. And then I realized that um, I'm reading a book right now, um, Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World. Um, mm. Have you guys read it? It's fantastic. Yes. I mean, it's anything amazing. Sagan writes is, I'm pretty, like, just, he's a, he was such a prolific uh, communicator. But he's talking about uh, like a baloney detection toolkit. And that started me thinking, like a few days ago, I was kind of connecting this to my doctoral research and thinking, you know, what we should be doing is essentially our entire secondary science program shouldn't be designed to train future scientists. That should be one part of what we do. But if you look at the, the numbers, less than 30% of students in a typical high school program go on to professional technical science programs. Our job isn't to teach those 30% exclusively. We should be teaching them, but we want to teach everybody and give them all that broad kind of um, over kind of, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, that broad kind of experience with science. And so they can use that in their day-to-day problem solving and their ability to address, you know, like COVID-19 from a a data-driven decision-making point of view. We want to have that kind of baloney detection toolkit that Sagan talks about but this is the thing that I find most frustrating is explicitly that's very rarely taught. Like we don't make it a point to teach kids what good evidence looks like and why the law of small numbers is generally not something to rely on. Um, you know, those are things that hopefully come out of a science program, but they're not specific to science programs. So they, I get kind of frustrated when I, when I hear things like that. So what... what... What then does the practice look like in your classroom? Okay. Oh, yeah, right. So let me... I, I go off on tangents sometimes. I apologize. Uh, no, so, don't you dare apologize. We no, love it. This is the unapologist. Yeah. <laughs> we don't apologize for our tangents here. Excellent. Um, so, okay, in my classroom, um, what I'm, I'm starting to do is I'll give students unstructured problems. So and they'll, they'll still be connected to the program um, that I'm trying to teach. So, for instance, in my, uh, my grade 11 physics class, we talk about springs. Um, and this is kind of at the end of the course. We talked about springs. We talked about energy. We talked about force. And I give the kids this, this homemade trebuchet made out of bungee cords. And I say, guys, your job right now, you get into groups, your job is to tell me what the efficiency of this trebuchet is. Why do you think this is going to be useful? Well, we want to know how well we can best use energy. There's a whole bunch of connections to, you know, decreasing fossil fuel consumption, improving our efficiency of our 
technology. So here's a simple machine. Let's figure out what the efficiency is. And then at the end, you guys are going to come up with ways to maybe make it better. And that's what all I tell them. So you guys have to come up with all the, the kind of technical science you need to do. Come up with an argument that's going to, based on data that you're going to gather in this experiment or in this, this kind of lab setting, and then you're going to present your results to the class. And then everyone else in the class is going to have a chance to kind of critique what you're doing. So you have to present your methodology for figuring out things like spring constants and stored spring potential energy. Um, you're going to have to present your evidence for how far this flew, how much energy it initially had, how much energy it had. Present this to the class and let the rest of the class decide whether or not your methodology and your analysis is actually rigorous enough to give us a firm scientific conclusion. And so it's almost like, what, like I don't have an answer for the students because, I mean, I, I do know what the answer is because I've done this numerous times. <laughs> but, but I don't tell them. I say, guys, I don't know. This is, and, and in all honesty, because the budget cores are getting a little bit old year to year, they are probably degrading a little bit. So each year it's going to be something new. Um, but I don't know what it is. I don't tell them that. I let them kind of go and just figure it out. So they are really engaging in a real process of discovery. Um, the, the science, like the physics that we're learning, is really just the vehicle that I want them to use to enter into this world of discovery and this kind of scientific analysis. The really neat thing I find about this is they're also engaged in a peer review process. And what I'm going to add to this, I think, next time is even a double-blinded peer review. So what they have to do is write up their results and then exchange it anonymously with someone else. So they're getting anonymous feedback from people because I think students are going to be a, a lot wow. less. They're going to be a lot less like open to giving criticism if they know who it is. So and the the great thing about this, or at least the way I'm looking at it, is it's going to help them understand the process that we went through as a society to getting our vaccines out to, to market. So when we went through, like when we have these controlled studies, they're double-blinded. So what does that actually mean? And so they're not just learning about physics. They're learning about the way science is supposed to work. And maybe then they can even critique that process. Like, can you see problems with how this might work and what might be some drawbacks to, to this process or why do we use it? Um, so again, like I said, there's a whole bunch of really cool stuff that I like about the why this is going to kind of enter into this my, my class approach for this and one of the things i keep hearing from from the moment we started having this conversation these aren't kids that are a working alone b yeah. filling out notes on a piece of paper I, i'm i'm guessing your class has stuff everywhere like things that they're working with their hands yeah. are busy yeah. and their mouths are busy talking like yeah. i'm hearing this is a vibrant class this is not a quiet class and i love that well, and, and the thing is, I, like, I, the kids get notes sometimes. They have to because there's some content they have to get. But at the end of the day, um, like I said earlier, part of, part of my curriculum is spring constants and Hooke's Law. I'm going to guess nobody, well, maybe maybe 5% of my students are going to use Hooke's Law after they leave my classroom. Right? So what's the rationale for me spend? like, yeah, I want them to learn this um, because I think it is, there is some value in at least understanding how we know stuff about springs. And having confidence that when someone says this is, you know, this is the spring constant, you know, when you buy shocks on your car, they're going to work the way they're supposed to. There is, you know, having that confidence is important. But unless they're going on to engineering, they're probably never going to encounter Hooke's law again. So I want to try and use Hooke's law as a way to get them talking about science and involved in this process. And it should be a process that requires other people. Like one of the interesting things that I found in my research is that. Science has to be 
uh, like it's not just a, a nice feature to have students talking to each other. Science, scientific knowledge is community created. So unless you have a community of people that are practicing it, you really can't be doing science because you're, you're lacking several important aspects of the scientific method. You don't have a peer review. You don't have the opportunity to collaborate. And you don't have people to validate your results. And when, when we're discovering something new, those are important. The problem I think we run into as science educators is we're usually teaching material that's already gone through that process. So we have confidence that, you know, Hooke's Law is a real thing, but our students don't. And so if we present it to them as, well, this is the knowledge you have to have, um, they're missing the fact that that's not how science works. So what I think is more important is that students learn more about the nature of science than about the content of science. So you've, you've touched upon this a few times through our conversation so far with your research. What else have you uncovered? Or rather, where, where are you hoping to take it? Well, so, yeah, my, my research is mostly focusing on, uh, like, broadly speaking, it's on scientific literacy. Um, but the problem, I guess, I shouldn't say it's, I'm researching scientific literacy because I'm not, but that's kind of the overarching, like, topic that I'm looking at. Um, the problem is scientific literacy is, it's kind of like a buzzword in education. Um, one of my professors and I were, were talking about this, and he, he said, it sounds to me like this is just an empty signifier. And that's really, in a lot of ways, what scientific literacy has come to mean. It's like a catch-all for everything we want students to learn by the time they're done a science program. But the way I look at it is, if that's what we're going to call it, it's really no different than just being scientifically educated. So we have two terms that are essentially synonymous. One of them is, is really not worthwhile. But the irony with scientific literacy is we assume that it's important, um, but we have no evidence for that. Like, as far back as the 1980s, uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science was doing research in scientific literacy. They actually found that this idea of scientific literacy doesn't actually lead to a more prosperous, healthier, better society. That's not to say it's not a good idea. I, I think it is. That's my whole research is on it. But the irony here is we're teaching students that we want to respect evidence, but we don't have evidence for this idea of scientific literacy that we're using. And I think the problem here is that we've just accepted that, that this is a good idea. We haven't looked at what scientific literacy means, um, how it's developed, how it's defined, and what it means. And it's going to mean different things to different people. So what I'm looking at in my research is if we're assuming that we want people to be um, uh, like conversant in science and understanding what it means to have you know, a respect for evidence and understanding the processes of science, how do we develop that in them? Um, and so what I'm looking at is kind of what I described before. It's this process of argumentation. So there's a whole section, not quite a subset of scientific literacy, because it is its own field on its own, but it's called scientific argumentation. And the, the idea is to have people developing their knowledge of science through um, creating um, scientific arguments. So kind of what I described with the, the, the catapult activity. Um, pick a topic. It can be anything in science. Have students do some research, and take a position on it, and then defend their position, um, and use that to develop their understanding, not only of the science that goes into their position, but of how that knowledge, uh, or how the scientific process is developing as, as they go through it. The, the analogy that I, I've kind of come up with is that science is essentially, what we want is, treat it like um, teaching someone to drive a car. 
the content is understanding how the transmission of your car works or how the, the brakes work or, you know, like any single like component of your car is the content knowledge we have. Um, but when you get right down to it, if I want to teach, you know, my daughter how to drive a car, I'm not going to open up the hood and tell her, you know, here's the transmission. Let's take it apart and rebuild it. I might show her what's inside so, you know, she knows what kind of sounds to listen for when something's breaking. But what's important is that all those things work together and we have people in our society that understand they, how they work. What we want is to be able to drive the car. Right? And that's what we want with scientific literacy. We want to be able to drive uh, this idea of the development of the advancement of scientific knowledge. So, I mean, think about it this way. If I was, if I was given a cancer diagnosis, um, I mean, I, I know a lot of, from, from my uh, university training and my, my doctoral studies and even my, my teaching about radioactive isotopes and how they're used in, in cancer treatments. None of that is really going to be relevant to me if I was diagnosed with cancer because I'm not an expert in it. What I'm going to do is use the training I have to find experts in it and have them advise me. And that's kind of where we are. Nobody can be an expert at everything. And so to a certain extent, trusting yourself or doing your own research is actually not a good idea when we make informed decisions. We should be trusting experts and, ha and helping them um, to inform us. So we want to have, like I'm not saying we shouldn't do our research because we do want to be able to do that. We need to be able to have that, you know, baloney detection kit that Sagan's talking about. But on the other hand, there's no way that I can know enough to make informed decisions that are, that are going to affect my life the same way that a doctor is going to be able to. Um, so it's, it's a really fine line there. Um, when, what we want is to have like the knowledge to identify what is baloney um, and the ability to trust experts when we, when we know what they are. It's, it's really hard to tell the distinction between those two things. But I mean, like I was saying earlier, when is, like, so going back to, you know, this radioactive isotopes, for example, I teach about mass defects and nuclear fusion and radioactive decay and whatnot. Um, but knowing how much energy is released in a particular decay is not going to be useful to me picking cancer treatment. I'm going to do some reading, but at the end of the day, my, I'm going to trust what my, my oncologist is going to tell me. Because whatever research I can do in, in two months, six months, they've spent decades doing. And so understanding, you know, and being able to identify who those experts are is also, you know, has to be one of the outcomes of our science training. It, I, I mean, it's a hard thing to do because we don't want to give up our own, you know, intellectual skepticism. Um, but it is important that we are re recognizing those experts when we see them. I, I, I think that's brilliant. Um, I, I'm immediately thinking about uh, my brother, Ian. My brother is a surgeon. He doesn't ask for advice from me to yeah. do surgeries, yeah. but my brother's younger brother, me, is a teacher. So every now and then, he asks for advice on how to maybe deliver a paper or if something sounds right. Um, yeah. And and it just it, you were really hitting on that, and I think that's uh, I think it's so important. Yeah. We need to be able to recognize our experts and recognize when we're not the expert. Well, and and that happens all the time. Like nobody. I think I read somewhere once, I don't know how true this is, that Isaac Newton was the last person to know, you know, to be an expert in almost every field of science. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me, because Newton, like, I mean, he was, he was brilliant, but he was also a little bit kooky, too. I mean, he was pretty deep in, like, um, uh, alchemy. But, I mean, in a lot of ways, like, if you look at the history of science, alchemy just evolved into modern chemistry. So, maybe he wasn't so kooky. Um, <laughs> Take it on the chemistry teachers again. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. 
But but I mean, um, ultimately, nobody can be an expert in, that, in everything. Like I mean, I, I I work right now. I'm doing some resource development for um, a particle physics institute here. It's it's really cool. I get to work with um, dark matter scientists. So they're researching how to detect dark matter particles. And what I'm doing is such a challenging project. So I'm trying to take the research they're doing and build physics resources that can be used in high school. And it's so hard because there's so much like the. By the time my students are finished their last course in high school, they're just getting kind of the prerequisite knowledge they need to understand the research. So it's, it's a big challenge. But what, what I found talking to these experts is, it, like, it, it, it's so true that, you know, to become an expert, you, you know more and more about less and less. And so they are so brilliant at one area of physics. But in some ways, it's not, it's not a mistake to say that I know more about observational astronomy than... They do because they're experts in detecting dark matter subatomic particles. And so, you know, nobody can be an expert at, every, at everything. And it's, it's very arrogant to assume that we can. So I, w- I want to go back and connect two points then that we had here. One was Isaac Newton, and he knew everything about science at the time. But if you consider how far scientific advancement got by the time it got to him versus yeah. from him to now, like nobody can really pick up the pace there. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and now you are trying to pick up the pace of dark matter to high school students. Which you know, where we're at now, that what what it's going to be. So how does how do you adapt a science curriculum for these evolving uh, discoveries? Well, so what I've been talking about, I don't know how well received this is going to be by the by the scientists that I'm, I'm working with. I think so far it's been really positive. Um, but what I'm looking at is less about the the dark matter physics itself, and more about the the broad kind of like I was saying, the epistemic knowledge that we get about science. So for instance. How do we know dark matter even exists? Right? Like, that's a question that we do need a lot of physics to answer. But it's also a question that, you know, when, when we look at the answers, look at the physics, it, just understanding why we know or how we know we've developed this knowledge um, tells us something about how science works. Um, I mean, another example we're looking at is how, why when we we're looking for dark matter, the signals potentially are incredibly weak. The, the background radiation from outer space would massively overwhelm it. So we have to have ways to remove that signal from our dark matter detectors. And it's actually not super challenging. Well, I say it's not super challenging. It's, it's possible to do, is I guess what I mean. It's very, very technically difficult. Um, but we can do it. So I'm looking at, I'm, I'm, right now what I'm working on is an activity for students to look at how that's done. And then at the very end, they're going back and looking at saying, well, if we have to do this for dark matter, what other areas of science is it important for us to take out background signals from? So, you know, if we look at something like climate change, what's a background signal to the, the Earth's um, warming? And can we look at anthropic warming as part of the, the broad global warming and the, subs- like the, the background signals that being the natural warming? So, I mean, that's one example, but like even when you look at any, like in electrical circuits, you have background signals that you want to kind of cancel. How do we do that if we're looking at a fiber optic cable? So... Looking at the kind of the dark matter research almost as a vehicle, again, like I was saying, to, to develop a broader understanding of how science works by looking at an area where we're currently making new discoveries. Because the interesting thing is, right now, the, the technology we're, that I'm most focused on at the moment with dark matter is um, bubble chambers. And so they use these tiny um, superheated droplets of, of um, fluorine or fluorine compound. And when a dark matter particle hits them, supposedly it'll create a nucleation site and create this bubble that we can detect acoustically. So like the sound of this bubble actually popping. Um, 
And the detectors are super sensitive. But to date, they haven't actually conclusively detected a dark matter signal. They get radiation and alpha particles and all that stuff. But they haven't detected a dark matter signal. So how do they work? Why are we, why are we still doing this research? And what are, what's the, the kind of the discovery that we're going to make? Because this is real science that even the researchers don't have answers for. So by putting students in the middle of this and giving them the data that they can work with, they can see that, you know, no matter who you ask in the world, no one is going to have an answer to this question for you. So I think um, I, want to, I want to also connect another point. It seems as though the pedagogical approach that goes towards the science class where there's this component of who can we trust and why can we trust them, that's got to be a component of every lesson when you're starting something new. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm thinking right off the way, um, you know, just based on talking with you, that's, that's absolutely crucial, but it's also another thing to manage in terms of the time you have to make it through that curriculum. So how do you introduce that component of this is what we're going to do. Here's the people we can trust who have done it already. These are the experts. And now we're going to trust them and then do it ourselves and learn. Well, the first thing I tell my students is I'm not an expert. I mean, I, I, I mean, I know a lot of physics, but there's no area that I'm an expert in physics. Um, I mean, there's always someone who's smarter than me. Right? Like, and I, I work with some of them, and it's, it's very humbling. Um, but one of, like, when we look at, for instance, it's a kind of core to almost every like, great introductory physics course is figuring out the acceleration of gravity. So one of the first things I ask my students is, you know, okay, here's our lesson on acceleration, guys. What's the acceleration due to gravity? And almost everyone knows it's 9.81 meters per second squared. And what is it? In imperial units? I don't, I don't even know. Anyway, 9.81 meters per second squared. Uh, and so I ask my students, okay, great. You know, how do you know this? And they're like, oh, well, well, someone told me. Great. Well, why did you believe them? <laughs> why did you believe them? Why did you? That's not really science. And so... They're like, oh, well, what do you mean? Like, well, you know, don't just trust them. Ask them for evidence. So we do rely on authority in science, but we also, that authority comes with a lot of evidence. So I say, what is the evidence that they were able to show you that this was, in fact, you know, the real value that we're going to use? So, and then, of course, we're, we're going, the first thing we do is we do an experiment. And it's really interesting. The experiment that I do, it, I love it. And, and no, no one else in my, class, my, my school actually likes this, but I, I love it. We have ticker timers that are from the 1950s. They're so old that they've actually stopped working reliably. It's really interesting because they give a very um, precise measurement. So the ticks in between any two like up and down motions of these, these ticker times are very, very precise, but they're way off. So the, the time intervals are not actually what they say they are. And so... The, the school wants, like the, the science department wanted to throw them out. I said, no, no, keep them because I love them. I get the kids to do it. And so what we get is these beautiful parabolic curves, exactly like we're exposed to, but their answers are completely bogus. So we get, we get like a third of the value they should, four times the value, and everyone in the class has different answers. And so I, I look at the class and Kate, so this is interesting, guys, because now we have an expected result, and our results don't agree with it. So let's try and figure out why. What's the problem? And they're like, well, well some, we measured it wrong. Okay, what does that mean? So you measured a distance. So the distances we're measuring are, you know, on the order of a meter. Are you telling me that you're, when, when you're supposed to measure 10 centimeters, you actually measured 50 centimeters? Is that a reasonable mistake to make? Well, no. I said, well, you know, I know little Johnny over there was in your group, so maybe with him it is. But most <laughs> of little Johnny. Yeah, that's, that's not a reasonable error measurement. Okay, so that, that, you know, we're not off by a factor of 10 in our, in our distance measurements. 
So what else? And because the ticker timer is this mechanical device, they don't they assume that it can't be wrong. And so that's not the first thing. They, they rarely ever go to that. So it's okay, well, is it possible that maybe there's a gravitational anomaly in our classroom? So but, <laughs> you guys you, you laugh, but it's a it's a like this should be one of the, the chains that we go through in our reasoning. Like if we want to try and understand the results we're getting, we should I, I mean it is pretty funny because I think you know. That means I'm walking through the classroom. I should be like four times as heavy over here than I am over here. And so we go. I go through this chain with the students talking about this and say, okay, is that reasonable? Well, no. Yeah, because if I throw a ball, it, should, it wouldn't travel through this parabolic path. So that's not reasonable. And eventually we get to the thing, like, well, maybe it's a problem with the time measurements. So, and then what the extension I give the kids here is, I want you guys to go home and design an experiment we could do to test whether or not these ticker timers are reliable. And so, I mean, we don't actually do it. Usually I don't have time. But this is kind of how I, I get the kids to think about what does it mean to have authority? We have to have something we can rely on. And usually in science, like if we're trusting an expert, we're talking about some sort of published peer-reviewed literature we can rely on. So that's what I get the kids to think about. Like they're, my, my um, grade 12 physics class right now is working on a research project, and they're asking what do they have to do for citations. And I don't, at this stage, I don't really care what you do, but you have to cite. Whether it's just saying, here's the YouTube, or here's the link that I was using to this resource. Um, some of the more keen ones start talking about, you know, their, their APA formatting or something like that. I don't, I don't get too much into that because it's not a requirement of my course. But I want them to give me just some evidence that they are looking at who it is they're, they're referencing when they're doing their work. Vito, you know I'm going to say big vibe. Oh, Huge! Yeah, I, 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 I could have said big face. vibe for the last forty-two minutes, <laughs> um, but but that's huge. What does it mean to have authority? Yeah. Huge question. Huge. But you don't need to just open that up to science. You can open that up to everything. That that works everything. on everything. Every level. This is a yeah. universal lesson that all of humans should should understand and learn. That's amazing. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so yeah. Oh, go ahead. You know, I'm not going to say anything it's super exciting now. No, no, we're watching the show to talk. That's that's. <laughs> well, you you you've hit so many amazing points uh, about where we should be going, and so, in your opinion, what should teachers be unapologetic about in their practice? Well, I mean, the most obvious one is being passionate about what you do. I mean, what you teach, what you how you teach it. Um, I mean, that, that rubs off on, on students, and they, they, they pick up on that, right? Like, being excited when you walk into class and, you know, like, being enthusiastic about the material you teach. I think that goes without saying. I think that's, that's, that's I, don't really, I don't think we need to be unapologetic about that, because that's just part of what we do. But, um, I guess the two things, like, so I, I've taught pre-service teachers at the university as part of my doctorate, and one of the things I tell them is, don't be afraid to take risks. You might see more experienced teachers doing things a certain way, and try it. There's nothing wrong with that, but don't be afraid to take risks and do something different. Um, the, the caveat to that, though, is you need to be able to objectively evaluate the risks you're taking. And some of them are going to pay off and some of them aren't. And, you know, you may, you have to be able to recognize which ones are, you know, things you want to pursue and which ones, you know, you tried and it didn't work and you're going to leave them. It's a hard thing to, to really gauge because you've got to give it enough time before you can, you know, decide that. I guess the other big thing is to, that, Evidence is important, not just in science, but in our teaching practices. Um, and one of the things, I guess, my, I was talking with my doctoral supervisor today, and one of the things that I've realized that's really, being in, in a doctoral program has really hit on me, is that we should respect 
evidence for teaching practices. Because there's a lot of research that goes into it. And it's important that we're, we're aware of what it is. And don't be afraid to you know, look for that, that kind of you know, peer-reviewed, published evidence of, of what makes good teachers. Because it's out there. And there's a lot we can learn from it. With the evidence that you are suggesting, is there some evidence for teaching practices that would surprise many teachers about what works or what doesn't? Um, that you've encountered. That you've encountered, yeah. sir. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, the, the, so the, the most, I guess the, the thing that I found most interesting in my doctoral research, particularly around um, science education, is almost everybody buys into inquiry. Teaching science through inquiry is something that everybody agrees is a good thing, but a lot of people don't do. And I think that's, that's kind of disappointing. The reason it's not done is two things. One is, um, the big one is time. It takes a lot of time, at least the, the perception it takes a lot of time, to develop these. And it doesn't. Like, good inquiry isn't hard. It's just instead of saying, what is, you know, tell me what the answer is, get students to look for the evidence first. So just kind of flipping the way we ask questions. It can change, you know, if, but the other big thing is teachers, the perception among teachers is, and again, this is, this is peer-reviewed literature now, they, the perception is they don't think they're competent in doing it, and so they don't try. And that's, like, first off, I would say nobody really is. Everybody's kind of learning this as they go. And, you know, we just, some of us have tried a few more things that have worked, and a lot of things that haven't, and have found stuff that does Nobody is really an expert. Some people just act better at being experts than others. Um, so, you know, there's, try putting, I guess, inquiry, argumentation, um, experimentation into practice, even if you don't think you're good at it. And eventually, like anything else, you will gain confidence at it. I love it. I love it. Vito. Chris. Vito, you know what time it is, bud. Let me look at my sundial. You look at the sundial because the sun's coming down. And, and what time is it coming down on, my friend? It's Pulse and Points time. time. It's Pulse and Points Season 3. Ian Doctor, uh, he's, he's teaching us so much tonight. We really fell into it, and I love that. Pulse and Points for tonight. I, I have literally circled every note that I made on him. Uh, so this has been very difficult. <laughs> But we have, uh, number one, I'm going right back to Ian's story. Passion plus people equals teaching. His was in the sciences. What's your passion? If you want to marry that passion to people, maybe teaching is what you should be doing, my friend. Uh, number two, and I, I really love this. Um, tie the cool stuff you do to the stuff you need to teach. Maybe it's a potato gun and, oh my God, that's cool. Oh yeah, but how about this? This is how it works. Or whatever discipline you're in. Tie the cool stuff to what you're going to teach, and you're going to get passionate students. Ask yourself, are we doing or are we learning about? A big question to ask, are we doing something or are we learning about something? Uh, the fourth Polson point tonight, scientific knowledge, my friends, it's community created. So let's make sure we're building scientific communities in our classrooms. Whatever discipline you're teaching, build community. Um, and hey, friends, the fifth Polson point, final Polson point of the night, don't ever forget to ask for the evidence. But wait, 
there's more because this was like the big vibe extravaganza. Um, <laughs> Ian taught us right from the get go. Academic arguments can lead to some pretty great places. So don't be afraid to have academic conversations with the people around you. It, it's, it's great. Focus on teaching kids. You're teaching kids. I love that. Um, the one thing you said, Ian, and I was immediately, I wanted to scream big vibe is what's your big bang. What's the big bang that you do, uh, that gets your big buy-in. Um, and, 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 and then a couple of serious, serious ones here. We want to teach everybody, not just the percentages that are going to go into the field, which we're teaching. We want to teach everyone. And probably the biggest vibe that I've ever heard in my entire life, Vito, what does it mean to have authority? What does it mean to have authority? Do your students know the answer to that question? And we can't end a season three episode without realizing what we need to be unapologetic about. Friends, be passionate. Be excited. Don't be afraid to take risks that are objectively evaluated. And friends, evidence is important, even, and dare I say, especially in our teaching practice, because no one's really an expert. Some of us just act better at it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ian. Uh, this was an absolute treat for Vito and I. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure was ours. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Unapologist Podcast. Join us next week when I'll talk with great people, learn new ideas, and tell the story of teaching as it happens. This is Vito and Chris signing off. Podcast.